uh, just an incredible ladies' conference here at our church, uh, the best ever. And now this past Friday and Saturday, I believe we've had the best men's conference that we've ever had. Our guest speaker was Dr. Brad uh, Claussen, who is speaking to us uh, today, this morning and tonight as well. And what a great time it was, not just only a great time of fun and fellowship, but the spiritual food uh, we received as men was priceless. Uh, Brad uh, grew up on a farm in, in Canada and is a, uh, working there with his family and going to school. God called him to the ministry, and as a newlywed, he and his young wife moved to Los Angeles in 1996, I think it was, to attend the Master's Seminary, and he got plugged in at Grace Church there, and Pam and I had the privilege of getting to know them, and they've been such an encouragement to us through the years. Uh, Brad and his wife, Heather, uh, one of his four children, his daughter, Emmy, is here as well uh, this weekend. Uh, but uh, we got to know them, and they've been uh, good friends ever since. He finished his MDiv and THM, uh, then was called uh, to serve as a missionary in Russia for about 12 years. And then in 2013, came back to Grace Community Church in the Master's Seminary, he completed his PhD in, in systematic theology. Uh, but he serves there not only as a professor at the Master's Seminary in, in Bible Exposition, but also as a pastor there at Grace Community Church. He has a Sunday morning group uh, that he preaches to every Sunday morning, a group called Commissioned. It's a large uh, class. And then he also gives direction to the men's ministry at Grace Community Church and preaches every Wednesday night uh, to the men there. So it is a great joy to have uh, Brad come and minister the Word of God to us today. Brad, you come. Well, thank you, Carrie, for the introduction and for the opportunity to minister here this morning and, and throughout the weekend. Uh, it is uh, quite a, a full weekend for us, and, and uh, on the way here, I was thinking of, of the different uh, things that Carrie had asked me to do, and thought, wow, this is quite a full weekend, beginning Friday night, Saturday morning, and then yesterday afternoon, and then to preach this morning twice. And then I remembered that... Um, when, when I was in Russia, and, and I would invite uh, Pastor Kerry to come and teach in Samara, I'd do the exact same thing to him. I would squeeze every drop I could out of him in the week that he would spend with us. So he's getting some uh, retaliation for all of this. But it is a, a joy to be able to serve in, in, to such a degree here. And a uh, real, real treat for me and my wife to be here. I, I had visited... Uh, your church back in, I think it was 2011, uh, you had had a, a missions conference here, I think it was in March of 2011, I couldn't remember exactly which year it was, and I came with uh, Johnny Gravino uh, from Italy, and we were here for a, a weekend or a couple of days, but it's been a long time, uh, and so to come back and to see how the Lord is is expanding this ministry here is is real treat, and then to spend time with Carrie and Pam, dear uh, dear people in our lives, uh, when uh, you know when you look back over your life, you always see that the Lord uses certain people in special ways uh, to, uh, to to uh, to to grow you and and uh, to form you. And certainly, when I look back on my life and all the different instruments the Lord used in my life to to uh, bring me along to where I am today, uh, Carrie certainly plays a significant role in that. As I've seen, uh, beginning in 1996, when my wife and I had just been married for four weeks, and we ended up uh, immediately, as uh, when we arrived in Los Angeles, immediately in his Sunday school group, 
and then for five years to be under his influence and for my wife to get to know Pam. Uh, we are just so thankful for them and, and uh, really are grateful for uh, the model of ministry that, that the Lord provided me in, in Carrie. And uh, so to come back here and to spend some time with them is, is a tremendous blessing to us and then uh, with you as well. Had a great time at the men's conference on Friday and Saturday and then uh, this morning it is just a, a real joy. Well, this morning I, I want to turn our attention to a text in Matthew chapter 20. As I thought of what is taking place here, especially tonight, which is a, a really historic moment for you as you ordain a man for ministry, which is always a uh, highlight for any local church, it immediately raises the issue of leadership and how we understand leadership in the church, but not just in terms of a man being ordained for ministry, but leadership and ministry in the church for all of us. It, it raises that question for us uh, at a time like this to consider what is God's pattern or paradigm for ministry, for leadership in the church, whether that is at the highest of levels in terms of eldership and pastoral ministry, or whether it's in, in lesser levels in terms of titles, but important and significant nonetheless, being a Bible study leader, a Sunday school teacher, a, a discipler of others, an evangelist in the, in, in the world. All of that has to do with, with leadership in some way. And so as we think of that, it's a wonderful opportunity that we have to, to look at what is the quintessential statement on leadership, the statement that comes from Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapter 20. So turn, to your, your, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, and we will be looking at verses 20 to 28 as Matthew records for us this quintessential statement, this paradigm for leadership. Matthew begins this section in verse 20 with these words. He says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In this text, we have Jesus' paradigm for leadership among his people. A paradigm 
for leadership that is to extend throughout the church age. This is not even just a paradigm for his immediate disciples, but it is a paradigm that is to mark all of those who follow Christ. Who follow Christ not only as their Redeemer, but also as their example. We saw that in verse 28. And as we look at Jesus' statement here on leadership, he gives us three reminders that are very important for us to understand as we think of our own ministry, as we think of our own interaction with others, as we think of the opportunities that the Lord gives to us to influence others in terms of discipleship and teaching and ministering the word to one another and, and, and fulfilling all the other one another commands that we have in church life. As we look at these reminders, there's, there's three of them, and, and, and these are the three that we will notice from this text, three reminders about Jesus' paradigm for leadership in verses 20 to 28. The first one is this, we must remember the preoccupation of human ambition. We'll see it in verses 20 to 24, the preoccupation of human ambition. Very important for us to remember what is the default position of our sinful flesh. We see that presented to us in verses 20 to 24. Secondly, we must remember Jesus' proclamation of a contrary agenda. His proclamation of a contrary agenda. And that will be described for us in verses 25 to 27. And then we also must remember the precedent of Christ's atonement in verse 28. The third important reminder that Matthew records for us. The precedent of Christ's atonement in verse 28. Now before we get into these, it's important to recognize the context of Matthew's gospel. This context is important for understanding how these verses fit in to the ministry of Jesus. Well, we know from Matthew's gospel that Matthew writes to present Jesus as the king. The concept of Kingship resounds from the very beginning of his gospel to the very end. It's all about the king and his authority. So when we look at the opening chapters of of Matthew's gospel and and we see the birth narrative, we read, for example, in Matthew 2 verse 2, that the wise men come from a distant land asking the question, which Matthew will seek in his gospel to answer, The wise men come asking the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's how the the gospel begins. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, we, we come across another interesting statement that testifies to this theme of kingship, and it's found in Matthew 27, verse 37. As an inscription is posted above the head of Jesus on the cross, which states this, Matthew 27, verse 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Matthew's gospel is about the presentation of the King and of his kingdom. 
but in a very fascinating way because we would typically expect that for the king and his kingdom, there would be much talk about all the glory and the crown, the throne, and all the authority and the, the, the rule of this king in very dramatic fashion. And yet, as Matthew's gospel presents it, there is a, a different kind of ministry that this king has. A ministry not of a crown of gold at his first coming, but as a crown of thorns. Not of a throne, but of a towel to minister to the needs of his people. Not of glory, but of a cup of suffering. But if there's anyone who can speak to us then of leadership and of ministry, it is this king. It is this Jesus. And so let's now look at how Matthew describes his paradigm of leadership. The first observation that we must recognize here is the preoccupation of human ambition. We see that in the first four verses here. The preoccupation of of human ambition, actually in verses 20 to 24, we find here described for us the default position of of unredeemed humanity and of our unredeemed flesh presented very clearly for us in this interaction of the mother of these disciples and and Jesus and even the the response of the disciples to what, what is taking place here. We read, beginning in verse 20, the word then. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request. Well, that word then immediately indicates to us that this this section, this pericope, must be read in light of something that has just happened. This follows quickly on the heels of of another event that has taken place, and we must read it in light of that. Well, if we look to the very end of Matthew 19, we notice this at the end in verses 17 to 19. Matthew records this event as the precursor to Jesus' quintessential statement on leadership in in, in chapter 20. The the, the, uh, verses 17 to 19 of, of chapter 20. Immediately preceding our context here in verse 20, we read this in in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now this is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has predicted what will happen to him there in Jerusalem. And now Jesus is actually on the road. Now we are just a short time of the fulfillment of these words. The third prophecy now occurs here in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. Jesus has said, look, we are going to Jerusalem. And the disciples recognize that in the words of Jesus here, in this warning, and and probably in his whole demeanor, that they are headed to something significant. 
Something world-changing. But they're misunderstanding this, again, because of the, 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 the preoccupation of, of their human ambition. They are missing the significance of, of what he's saying. They know they're headed to Jerusalem, and they know something important is going to happen, and they're fixated on, on what that means for them, and, and all they can think about is the thrones that they can sit in. Now, you might think, why is this? Why are they not hearing Jesus talk about the the mockery, the scourging, and the death? They they should be somber here. But instead, as we read in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. She bows down to him. She, She recognizes his authority And she makes a request of him, but it's interesting in this request, she doesn't ask him really, she issues an imperative. She gives a command. She comes to Jesus, recognizing him as king, but as she bows down at his feet, she at the same time says, Jesus, do this. Now what do we know about the the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, well, we can tell from other descriptions in the Gospels that her name was probably Salome. This is Salome, the sister to Mary. So there is, there is this connection here, the, the, being the sister to Jesus' mother. There is a, a family connection. And so perhaps James and John, who are really behind this question, this command have put their mother up to to this request. Perhaps they themselves are too cowardly, or perhaps they do remember some of Jesus' teaching in the past, that the first shall be last and the last first, and so they think, well, maybe it's not ours to ask. Maybe we put our mother up to this. And maybe they remember that Jesus was always so compassionate to the women. Whenever he interacted with them, he had such compassion. So if we get our mom to do this, there will be more, there'll be a much better answer to the request. Or perhaps because of the family relation, the, the, the disciples of James and John, they, they think, well, this is our best shot. Let's play the family card. Let's see if we can get into that position on the right and on the left. And so Salome comes to Jesus and gives him this command. Now on the one hand we think, why in the world would she do this after Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed? And we think this is totally out of place. Salome, you are just out of place. James and John You have understood nothing. But there is a basis to this. There is something that Salome and her sons have understood correctly about Jesus. He is a king, after all. And if we go back to the end of chapter 19, which records an event for us that is a little bit prior to what we read in Matthew 20, verse 20, we do find a reference to thrones. Notice at the end of Matthew 19, Matthew records this event beginning in verse 27. Then Peter 
here says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be for us? And Jesus said to to them, and now he's answering not just Peter, but all of the disciples, and perhaps even in that midst was Salome. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, and that's a special term there that refers to the future establishment of the theocratic kingdom. The time when the prophecies of the Old Testament related to the establishment of Israel with a a circumcised heart, a new heart, under the new covenant, there would be this this establishment of the nation of Israel through which the Messiah would rule the world. Jesus refers to that here when he refers to the regeneration. He says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, there was a basis in Salome's request. She was rightly thinking. That some point in the future, now they thought that because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he was about to do this. He was about to inaugurate the regeneration of the nation. They're thinking that Jesus is the one to do this. He's the king. He's going to come in his glorious throne. And and likely, when we get to Jerusalem now, because we're on the way, Jesus is going to do this. So in that sense, the the disciples and and, and Salome had correctly understood the future. Jesus will establish a kingdom. But what they failed to recognize, particularly in the prediction of death, was that there was a step that was necessary before the kingdom. There was a stage, a a setting that was necessary to take place before the coming of this regeneration. And this is what is the focus in this text. How does Jesus respond to the question? This question that arises from a failure to understand an intermediate stage. A stage between the first advent of Christ and the second. Jesus is so compassionate. We would be so tempted to express indignation and impatience in this whole interaction. But Jesus, in in this compassionate response, he says to her, beginning of verse 21, What do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine might sit on your right and on your left. Those were the two positions of highest authority. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, now the disciples step up. 
And they say, we are able. Jesus asks, are you able to drink of the cup? Now, for the Hebrew mind, so familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the the cup was a well-known analogy. And, And if you would go back over the Old Testament, you would see that this picture of the cup could refer to one of three things. On the one hand, the picture of the cup could refer to, to blessing. That God would pour out of, of this cup blessing. In other cases, the cup was used to refer to the pouring out of wrath, of judgment. But the cup was also used in that Hebrew scripture to refer to suffering. The cup of suffering. And, and that is how Jesus uses the analogy here. It was clear he has just described his own impending suffering. And Jesus asks, are you able to drink of the cup that I am about to drink? And the, these disciples, James and John, answer in a remarkable way. In the original Greek, it is just one word. Dunamitha. Jesus, dunamitha, we are able. We are able. And what this response indicates with with such a tersity is is that the disciples still were so oblivious to the cup of suffering. They were so focused on the crown and the thrones that they either dismissed the cup of suffering as insignificant or looked at it as so temporary that it didn't matter, that they answer in this very cursory way. Yes, of course, we're able. The brevity indicates their, their ignorance. They, at this point, they still did not understand the cup, the suffering. In fact, they will still be arguing about this at the Last Supper. We could go into Luke's gospel. In Luke 22, he records how at that last meal that they share together before Jesus is about to be arrested, tried, condemned, scourged, mocked, and to die on the cross, at that last supper, they're still arguing over who is greatest. Who is going to get the position of of blessing? The position of honor? And this so well describes... The the human preoccupation, the human ambition. We are oblivious to the words of Christ so often. And, And even as these disciples, even after we have spent time with Jesus, we are still looking for first place. We are still trying to maneuver and manipulate. And... Like the disciples, if we could, we'd even send our mothers to go and ask Jesus for first place. This is the preoccupation of of human ambition. We're, We're oblivious to the teaching of Christ. But as Christ says here, before the reward must come the cup. This cup is what is to occupy our attention in this inter-Advent era, in the era between the two Advents of Christ, in this era before the regeneration of Israel, what we could call in this church age. It is the cup. And what that cup signifies is that 
Instead of the throne, we will have suffering. Instead of glory, we must show sacrifice. Instead of crowns, we must think of our own crosses. If there is one word, one picture, that is to describe how we are to look at ministry in this age, before Christ returns with His reward, if there is one picture to to, to understand this age as it relates to our ministry in the church, it's the picture of the cup. Are you able to drink the cup? That's what is so important for us. Now, it's not as if just James and John have this preoccupation. We read immediately in verse 24, hearing this, the ten other disciples became indignant with the two brothers. Now, this isn't a righteous indignation. We might think that in in that moment, the other disciples will come around and say, James and John, what is up with you? We are to be last. We are to sacrifice. We are to serve. We are are servants and slaves. What are you thinking? But that is not what they're after. As I said, at the Last Supper, they will still be arguing over who is greatest. No, this indignation is a fleshly indignation. The word for indignant here is a very strong word for anger. What is taking place here is a sibling rivalry. Each one of these other ten disciples wanted a shot at the right hand or the left. This was the great problem of the disciples. And and it shows us here that even those who spend an enormous amount of time with Christ still will struggle with this ambition. And, And we think of it this way, that even if those disciples who spent three years of their lives walking daily with Jesus and seeing Him give of Himself in that that daily enterprise of His ministry, that even those were so prone to listen to their flesh, so prone to, to live according to the old man, the old way. And that is an important lesson for us to remember for ourselves. If those disciples had the problem, what about us? If among the disciples there was such ambition for grandeur and position, being on the pedestal, how much more is that the case for us? We must recognize this propensity of of human ambition. But let's now look at the second observation about leadership that, that, that we have recorded for us from Matthew And it's found in verses 25 to 27. After we see the preoccupation of human ambition, we now see the proclamation of a contrary agenda. The proclamation of a contrary agenda, verses 25 to 27. Matthew records this, But Jesus called them, now all the disciples, to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
Here in very vivid antithetical parallelism, Jesus proclaims this contrary agenda. And as we look at these verses, verses 25 to 27, we see three parts that function to, 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 to describe this, this contrary agenda. We first have the, the definition of leadership according to the world. Christ acknowledges it here in verse 25. He says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. He says, You know this. This was not something that deserved an argument. It was axiomatic. Everyone was familiar in that day. Everyone was familiar with how leadership worked. Jesus describes it here in, in two ways. And he calls this, the, the, these rulers the Gentiles. And that's not to say that this kind of leadership only was present among a certain ethnicity. Jesus is not using the word Gentile here to refer to ethnicity. The word Gentile here is a term that is being used to refer to lostness. To spiritual lostness. To the natural human order. And he describes the natural human order, the the natural human understanding of leadership with two parallel statements. First, he says, the rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, over other Gentiles. The word for exercise lordship means to have mastery over. It's built off of that, that verb or that noun, kurios, the title, kurios, lord, And a verb comes from that, which means to exercise lordship or mastery. It emphasizes top-down leadership. Jesus says the rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship. And he says, secondly, their great men exercise authority. The great men here refers to the bigwigs. Those in the high positions, and they exercise authority. Authority. It's a very intensive verb that puts all the focus on authority. And Jesus says, this is how it looks in unredeemed lostness. This is how it looks like in the world. And all of us, with the remnant of unredeemed flesh, understand this picture. Not only have we experienced it at the hands of others, but it's the propensity of our human flesh. Our sinful flesh longs to do these things. It longs to exercise lordship. It longs to exercise authority. It's what our flesh is all about. But there's a hinge here in this antithetical parallelism where Jesus says this at the beginning of verse 26, and it's a fascinating statement. After describing leadership according to the world, he makes this statement here. He says, it is not this way among you. He doesn't say it should not be. He doesn't say I don't want it to be. It is so definitive. It is so direct that he states it as a fact. It, that is... The world's way of leadership, it is not this way among you. Very black and white, very concise, very direct, stated as a simple indicative to express the fact that there is no room for discussion. 
This is not the way it is among Christ's followers. And with these five words, Jesus summarily discredits any attempt to portray leadership in the church among his followers according to the pattern that you can observe in the world. Goes to show that when we think of things like influence and leadership and authority in the church, it is the absolute worst thing to do to try to find lessons in the unredeemed world. Jesus says to us, that's not what it is. Leadership in the church is not to look like it does in the world. So how does it look? And now we find the the other half of the, the parallelism. After this hinge, after he stated what it is not, and then you have this hinge, now you have the positive description, the exact opposite of what is found in the world. And Jesus says this, But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. This is how it is. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, again, follows with two positive descriptions in response to the two negative ones in the previous half. He says this, Whoever wishes to become Great among you. This is exactly what James and John had wanted. To be great would be to sit at the right hand of a king and at the left hand. There would be nothing more greater than that. Yes, we can't be the king, but if we could sit immediately to his left and to his right, that would be the best expression of greatness. But Jesus says, well, if you want to be great, James and John and you other ten disciples... If you want to become great, you must become a diakonos. You must become a servant. The the word for servant here is the word that would express those who would be occupied in the household with household duties, especially the preparation of food. Now let's remember in that day, you didn't have the quick and easy microwave dinners that you have today. To make food in those days was a Uh, an occupation that consumed the day. It was not easy. And the, the people understood that there were those who would be in the household who would be dedicated to this purpose. Their life would be about making food for others. And so they would devote their lives to making the food, to serving the food, to waiting on the table, and then when all of that was done, the diakonos would get what's left over. First would come all the service and preparation, waiting on the table, and then after everyone is satisfied, after everything has been cleaned up, and then they would have the opportunity. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You have to become a diakonos. A table waiter, devoting your life as you are hungry, devoting it to preparing food for others. And then, after they have eaten, you eat. Jesus follows that up with a second description, again, contrasting the the second description that was in the previous half of this parallelism. And he says this, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Here the word is doulos. This is even more extreme than the diakonos. 
The doulos was someone who is not free at all to do what they wished, but were bound to obey the will of another. That's the doulos. And in Roman society, in the Greco-Roman Empire at the time, the lowest of the, 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 the rungs of, of, of social status, the lowest was that of the doulos, that of the slave. And Jesus says here, when it comes to leadership and ministry, influence among my people, this is how it looks. You must become a doulos, a slave. Greatness in my church, Jesus says, will come through humility and selflessness. In the church, you will not have a throne. You will wait on tables. In the church, you will not wear a crown. You will wear the towel to wash feet. In the church, you will not exercise your rights, but you will surrender them. That's Jesus' agenda. And this agenda is, of course, what is so contrary to our flesh. We like the titles. We like the applause. We want to be made much of. We want to exercise authority. We want people to obey what we say. We want them to follow through with what we command. We expect respect. We cultivate platforms. We protect our territory. That is what so often comes from our flesh. And Jesus says, it is not this way among my people. Now we might look at that and say, well, if our flesh is so disposed to this, and if this is so common, is there any hope? This just must be some kind of idealized picture. Jesus is just giving us this abstract idea And maybe it'll have some kind of influence and temper some of that human ambition. And that's where we come to our third observation as we examine Jesus' quintessential statement, and it is this, the precedent of Christ's atonement. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life, a ransom for many. Now, as we're going to see as we look at this text, this is important because Jesus is not just throwing out there an ideal and saying, now you do it. If that's all he did and did nothing else, it would be impossible, and we all know that. Because we are so enslaved to that human ambition. But as Jesus goes on to speak here, he came for two reasons. Number one, he came to provide the the payment to, to rescue us from that bondage to ourselves. He came as a payment to give His life as a ransom, to make the payment to rescue us from bondage. To to make sure that we are no longer enslaved to that human ambition. This would not be possible if Jesus had not given His life as a ransom. We would remain enslaved to our worst ambitions. 
But Jesus here now speaking on that side of the cross is predicting the means by which this can be accomplished. It will be accomplished because he says to his disciples, I'm going to give my life as a ransom. I am going to liberate you. I am going to free you from your worst enemy, yourself. But he also makes this statement and emphasizes here that he does not just command this of his followers, but he says, I'm going to show you what it's like. He does not just expect his followers to attain to some kind of level of, of, of spirituality. Instead, he says, I will prove to you by example. And in our text, we see this example vividly described both by what it is not and by what it is. First of all, by what it is not, he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served. Now, when you see that title, Son of Man, you may be thinking, well, that's a title of humility. The Son of Man, he, was, he himself was, was human. Here's his humility coming through. No, the title Son of Man is not a designation of humility. The term Son of Man, especially in this context, is a, is a, is a reference back to a vision that the prophet Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, Daniel sees someone standing before the Ancient of Days. I mean, imagine that title, the Ancient of Days. That title is a title of glory and majesty, of eternality. And who is the one standing before that Ancient of Days? It is the Son of Man. And he goes on in verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7 to say this, And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion, that is the dominion of the Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. And this indeed will come. There will be the regeneration of Israel when this prophecy will be fulfilled. But Jesus says to his disciples here, I am that son of man, but understand this. In this first advent, what must take place first is that I did not come to be served. Instead, now we have the positive description. He says this, but... To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In that second statement there, the positive side of this description, Jesus summarizes his entire life in two thoughts. First, he came to serve. That is a reference to his life. 33 some years But particularly those three years of ministry, his life, his active obedience of service, the giving of himself three years, day after day, to the point of of weariness in his human existence, of pouring himself into others, of healing the sick, of forgiving, of teaching, of feeding 
This is Jesus' service. And when you read the Gospels, you see these three years where there are so many demands on Jesus. No one ever contributes to Him. He expects nothing of anyone, but He is living His life day after day. He is investing in others. He is taking of Himself, and and He is giving it to others. That is His years of life and ministry. He came to serve And then in one statement, he describes the atonement. He then came also to give his life. This is a metaphor of the idea of to die. And notice this, that verb to give, to give his life. We've seen that verb already in this section. If we go back to verse 23, Jesus says, you know what, Salome, for me to give of the throne on my right or my left, for me to give that is not mine. I don't give those positions. But what does Jesus give? He says it right here in the latter half of this verse. He says, it is mine to give my life. The word for life here, the the idea here is is that of a, a payment. The life as a ransom. The word for ransom is, is the word lutron. And, and it was a special term that was used to refer to the purchase of slaves to ensure their freedom. So when a slave would be on the slave block, if someone would be so compassionate and kind to manumit them, to, 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 to purchase them into freedom, they would pay a lutron. They would pay a payment in manumission. And Jesus says this, My life is the purchase price for your freedom. Specifically, he says here, he pays his life for the many. For the many. This has the idea here in the original of a direct substitution. It's not for all, but it is for the many. It is for those who would ever believe in him. He would pay this ransom price. This price to liberate them, to rescue them from the wrath of God which they so deserved. From the curse of the law which pronounced on them death for their rebellion. From the shackles of their own sin and and, and enslavement to their own ambition and, and to purchase them from the domain of darkness. Jesus says, I give my life as the payment price to rescue the many from those things. So we find here Jesus' logic. We see that, that His life is that which frees us, but not only frees us, but it is that which also then enables us. Which provides the example for how we are to understand ministry and leadership. You see in that little sentence there, To serve and to give his life, that's the picture of the cup. For Jesus, that's the picture of the cup. And Jesus says, in this way, as I will drink my cup, you must drink yours as well. As we said, the disciples won't catch this immediately. They will still argue about this all the way along the road to Jerusalem. All the way up to that last supper. Who is greatest? Who deserves first place? 
But we see what happens when the ransom is paid, don't we? What happens to James? He becomes the first of the apostles to drink the cup to the foremost. He gives his life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus. And then we, we read at the end of our scripture, we read of John, a partaker in the sufferings of Christ, who is exiled there on that island called Patmos, suffering, drinking the cup willingly for his Lord. And that gives us hope because we see that even as those two brothers at once were, were so in tune with their sinful flesh that all he could think about was those crowns and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't think about this inter-advent era, this era of the cup, this era that we call the church age, this description of life in the church, of life among Jesus' followers until he returns and brings his reward. They could only think of, of, of the crown and yet, because of Jesus' death on the cross, they will come to think of it in the proper terms. And that is hope to us. That is hope to us because we, like James and John, in our own ways, can also drink the cup and will also drink the cup. And as they, we must embrace it. And, and we must take joy in it. That in the church... In leadership and influence and ministry as it looks right now, it is going to be marked by hardship. It's going to be mocked, marked by mockery and, 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 and figurative scourging and, and perhaps some very real sacrifices as you, for the sake of one another, surrender your own rights, surrender that ambition to first place, surrender the idea of a platform, and instead... Put the towel around your waist. Get on the dirty ground and wash people's feet. That's the cup. And that is the cup that our Savior drank. And to drink of that same cup is nothing but pure honor. And let us not think that that's all that there is. Jesus, as He has promised, will return and he will bring his crowns. But until then, let's embrace the cup. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are especially thankful of this last verse, verse 28, that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for us. And before there could ever be the realization of crowns and honor and dignity, there was a much greater problem that needed to be solved. And that is the problem of our sin, the problem of our enslavement to the idol of self. And we're so eternally grateful that Jesus came. The Son of Man came to give His life as a payment to release us from that bondage. We're also thankful that in doing so, He also provided a pattern to follow 
And it is here that we ask, Lord, that, that we, would, we would now, having been purchased by His blood, by His drinking of the cup, that we would now follow in His ways. Give us that strength and understanding to live out this reality in our daily lives as we interact with other brothers and sisters that we would willingly embrace the cup, we'd willingly embrace the towel, we'd willingly embrace the sacrifice and the service. But to do that, Father, we pray that you would keep the cross of Christ center in our thinking because it's only through that that this is possible. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and it is in his name that we pray. Amen.